Detective Trap contains descriptions of violence and sexual content and is not suitable for everyone. Please be advised. One morning in April 2014, Julissa Trapp woke before sunrise and went to her closet. I know I probably went through at least three or four shirts. Just staring at, like, trying to decide what to wear. She would have to make a thousand calculations that day. Some of her choices would be right out of the homicide investigation manual. Some of them would be influenced by the small army of other cops who watched her work. Some would be instinctive and hard to fully explain. I remember thinking to myself, this is just like any other interview. Don't let it get into your head. Of course, it wasn't just any interview. Soon she would walk into a windowless 8x10 room and sit face-to-face with a man she had been hunting for the last month. To walk into an interrogation room was to play a character, she liked to say. And that began with the right costume. It was a strategy and advice I got from an FBI agent when I worked sex crimes, that pink is a soft color, it's very approachable, non-threatening, and so that was something that I traditionally wore. I, I reached for those first, and it just didn't feel right. At the Anaheim Police Department, where she worked, Trapp was known as a master interrogator. That depended on finding exactly the right persona for the room. Would she be a mother? A sister? A friend willing to listen? I think part of it was, there was people that told me, like, do you think he's even going to want to talk to you? Like, do you think he hates women? One woman was dead. Three others had vanished. Today might be the last chance to get answers about their fate. If the missing women were alive, the man in the interrogation room might reveal where they were. If they were dead, as she suspected, the man might be talked, maybe tricked, into revealing how she could bring the bodies home. Julissa Trapp had missing persons of her own, and she carried them on her skin, so they confronted her when she stood in the mirror, as she did now. They were represented by four black birds tattooed in a straight line under her collarbone. They were swallows, the bird that carries souls. She thought of each one as a kind of scar, but also a reminder of the mystery of fate that had brought her here to this particular morning and this particular case. For this adversary, she thought it was important to look approachable, but also to project strength. I'm I'm sitting here trying to decide, like, what do you wear when you're interviewing a serial killer? She picked an emerald green blouse. I wanted a color that looked good on me, but also that kind of signified a little bit of power. Emerald green just kind of seemed to hit it. I wanted him to know he was in control of that room. Detective Trapp put it on, over the swallows, and grabbed her badge. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, I'm Christopher Gofford, and this is Detective Trapp. Randy or not now, this game's mine too. So follow me lightly to the deep dark woods. This is episode one, All the Missing. Anaheim Police Department headquarters is in a red brick building that cops call the barn. It's been a second home for Julissa Trapp for most of her life. 
She now works at a cubicle on the second floor, where she's the only woman on the eight-person homicide unit, or what she calls the varsity squad. The case that would consume her for years, the case that this story is about, began a few miles away in Santa Ana, the densely packed county seat. Women began disappearing from the streets there in the fall of 2013. Trapp would come to know their life stories intimately, and their faces would stare at her from the corkboard beside her cubicle. But initially, the case belonged to the police department in Santa Ana, where the missing persons unit had just one full-time investigator, a civilian, handling nearly 100 missing persons reports a month. The first to vanish was Kiana Jackson, who had just celebrated her 20th birthday. She had grown up in Northern California's logging country and left home in her late teens. She had been living in Las Vegas and had fallen into the grip of a man her mother came to believe was a pimp. It wasn't like she got out of high school and said, or as she was growing up, said, well, this is what I want to be. I want to go be this. Kiana Jackson's mother, Kathy Menzies, raised her in a small timber town with one high school and a railroad museum. She got thrown into a big city and got swiped up because somebody saw her vulnerabilities. Menzies says they kept in close touch, talking or texting every day. She saw something funny and took a picture of it and sent it to me, or she heard this funny joke and wanted to share it with me. Or, you know, I mean, during the day it was, oh, I'm going to make dinner tonight. What? How do I make this? In the first week of October 2013, Kiana Jackson took a Greyhound bus to Santa Ana. When her mother didn't hear from her for a few days, she reported her missing to the Santa Ana Police Department. The person she talked to had looked up Kiana's rap sheet and found she had a record for prostitution. And I thought, okay, well, then, okay, but that still doesn't mean she's an invalid person. She's a human being just like anyone else. She has a right to be looked for. He just said, he goes, just so you know, prostitutes work circuits. From what I understand now is what he was meaning was, you know, they move from town to town. And I said, well, what you don't understand is, okay, maybe she was working circuits at the time she was talking to me all the time, but she talks to me daily. I see something from her daily, whether it's a voice, hear her voice, see a text message, something. She called Orange County hospitals. She called the morgue. No trace of Kiana. She called the Motel 6 where she'd been staying. Kiana had left her things in her room and not returned. Weeks passed, and the mother's panic and desperation grew. At the Santa Ana PD, it was not considered a high-priority case. It would be months before police got a warrant for Kiana's cell phone records to determine where it was last pinging. In the meantime, 18 days after Kiana Jackson went missing, a second woman disappeared. Josephine Monique Vargas was a local woman who moved between family and a room at the Red Roof Inn with her husband. She was 34, but looked older and careworn. Her nickname was Giggles because her laugh had always been irrepressible, even in church. She had dropped out of Santa Ana High School in the 11th grade and worked as a babysitter and house cleaner. She struggled with a crack cocaine habit and had a record for prostitution. She had a newborn but had lost her children to Child Protective Services. Her mother, Priscilla, said they were having a backyard barbecue at the family's Santa Ana home when Josephine announced she would walk up the block to the 98-cent store to buy some extra napkins. She didn't come back. Right from the beginning, I knew something wasn't right. We called the hospitals. 
nothing. And the, my kids would say, oh, she'll show up. She'll be here tomorrow. Watch. You'll hear from her. You'll hear from her. The next day, nothing. And that's when I went and I reported her missing. Again, it was months before they got the missing woman's phone records to determine where she had last been. Nineteen days after Josephine Vargas's disappearance, 37 days after Kiana Jackson vanished, a third woman went missing from the streets of Santa Ana. This was another local woman named Martha Anaya, who was 27. She lived really close, so she would stop here every day, and like we would always talk. She would always come in my room, and we would just gossip about life. This is her daughter, Melody Anaya. She always told me I was very bright, because uh, I don't think she ever finished high school. So whenever she needed help spelling something, she would always tell me, and she's like, why do I need Google if I, had, I have you? You, like, know everything. She always told me, when I'm old, you better take care of me. At the time, Melody was 12 and living with her grandmother. Every other week or so, her mother would come by and take her to Knott's Berry Farm. They rode roller coasters and shared carne asada fries. That was, like, our thing, carne asada fries from Knott's. When she asked her mother what she did for money, her mom pointed to her bad knee and said the government sent her checks. They were struggling to make the rent and pay for school books, and Melody was anxious. And she's like, we can. Don't worry about anything. We are the adults. I remember the last day I saw her in person, uh, we ended up going to Carl's Jr. And I remember that day we didn't have 10 cents for this burger and the, the lady at register didn't want to give it to us. And so I asked this customer if she had like 10 cents and she get, ended up giving it to us. So we were really grateful for that person, even if it was just 10 cents. <laughs> and we sat down and I always remember the smile that my mom flashed to me. Her mother's advice was not to worry about the judgment of other people and not to let people take advantage of her kindness. My mom always told me, be nice, have a good heart, but don't let people step all over you. On the day Martha Anaya disappeared, she and her daughter were texting about Nutella. I was like, I eat it with a spoon. She's like, you don't need it on bread? I'm like, no. And then that was our last conversation that we had, and she never read the part where I said no. I came home from school, and I saw my grandmother crying, and my aunt was here, and so was one of my cousins. And, like, I remember asking her what was wrong, but she didn't want to tell me. So I just went to my room, and I brushed it off. And then I came back, and my grandma was still crying. And then she finally told me, oh, your mom hasn't called me. I'm really worried. This isn't like her. I'm like, I'm sure she's fine. I'm sure she just hasn't paid her phone bill or, or something. So I texted my mom. I called her. Nothing. And I was just like, well, this is not like her. She would have came here already. She would have called. I, I know something's wrong with her. When they went to the police, the family says, they got pretty much the same answer that the other families got. She had a record for prostitution. And it wasn't so unusual for prostitutes to drop off the grid for a while. I would cry every hour of the day, and it was just really bad at night. Martha's mother, Erlinda, says she asked for a meeting with the Santa Ana police chief and pleaded for his help, but was told that Martha was probably enjoying herself in Las Vegas. Priscilla, Josephine Vargas's mother, went with her to meet the chief and said he told her the same thing. The mothers hadn't known each other before their daughters disappeared. Now they were searching the streets together. On Sundays, they held vigils at the DMV. This is Priscilla again. We used to walk that streets at 3 o'clock in the morning. People would ask me, are you crazy? 
I don't care. They're gonna, they better kill me because I don't care. You know, that's my daughter I'm looking for. Nothing's going to stop me. Putting the, the flyers up there, I'd be putting my girl, she'd be putting her daughters everywhere. I mean, we went in areas that you wouldn't believe. Those motels, man, you walk in there, man, you're fearing for your life. You know, at night, yes, it's dangerous. And she would tell me, you're not scared. No, I'm not scared. If I'm looking for my daughter, I'm looking for my daughter. We went looking in cars, abandoned cars. There was a few houses down on first that were abandoned buildings. I would go in there and look, you know, never know. But I, we did a lot of things, me and her, a lot of things that you wouldn't believe looking for those girls. She and Erlinda searched for months. Every time they had a meeting with me and her, it was always the same story. Oh, every cop has their flyer, don't worry. I told him if I was a, a wealthy woman, you'd be looking for her. I go, but since we don't have money, you don't care. That's it. The Santa Ana police chief at the time has since left the department, and despite my efforts, I wasn't able to get him on the phone. The department says a variety of factors go into how they prioritize cases, including the background of people reported missing, whether they've been reported missing before, and stable employment. They told me, quote, Unfortunately, the factors associated with these victims' lifestyle made it difficult to determine whether these females were missing on their own accord or the victims of foul play. Over in Anaheim, Detective Julissa Trapp had been working a terrible case. A young man just out of a mental institution accused of fatally stabbing his mother in her bedroom. Her city got about a murder a month, and she was always busy. Trapp was not aware of the pattern of missing women in Santa Ana until late in 2013, when she turned on the news at home. The mothers were posting flyers and going street to street asking if anybody had seen the women, begging police to take it seriously. A police spokesman said they were looking into whether the disappearances might be connected. It just came on the news, and it was a story of these women that were going missing in Santa Ana, and I was just thinking like, huh, wow, that seems odd. Like, there's definitely something strange about it, right? Like, that's a lot of women going missing with a similar M.O. When Julissa Trapp drives through her hometown of Anaheim, it feels to her like one big crime scene. Every street leads to the site of a remembered stabbing or shooting or chase, to close calls and hard lessons, to dead-eyed killers and inconsolable mothers. It's a mental map of what the jaded call anacrime. The crowded city of 350,000 people that encircles Disneyland which serves as an ever-present backdrop in the way that other company towns have walnut groves or anthracite mines. There are blocks menaced by gangs and shadow economies fueled by drugs and sex. Of course, all of this shares a geography with Trapp's most personal memories and some of her happiest. Down that street is the little yellow house where she grew up. And down that one is where she first pulled her gun. Over there is her elementary school and here is where she patrolled in her 20s, a pixie-haired cop so small at 5'3", 
she struggled to see over the steering wheel of the big Chevrolet Caprice they put her in. There was a phone book or a cushion or two that might have been used in order for me to look out. (laughs) There's Pauline Street, where she worked gang detail, knowing she was not a popular pick for the assignment and that colleagues were whispering, what does she know about gangs? Down that way, she chased a gunman through a series of backyards and gave the wrong location when she radioed for backup, causing a sergeant to bark, was she trying to get herself killed? And I remember after that going to another senior officer um, and him telling me, he goes, you know, in your free time, what you need to do is you just need to drive around these streets and you need to memorize them like the back of your hand. And so that's what I would do is I would start driving the alleys, you know, when it wasn't busy and, and trying to, to memorize which street was which so that that never happened again. There's the barn, the downtown police headquarters, where she's been showing up since she was 15-year-old Julie Rios, police explorer badge number eight, an Anaheim girl trying to learn her radio signs and begging for ride-alongs with grown-up cops. She was a cadet at 20, working the walk-in counter, and a sworn officer at age 21. To people who have seen her work, she's Hurricane Julie. Some longtime colleagues call her the Cape, because she once flapped around like one when a guy twice her size who objected to his arrest tried to shake loose from her headlock. She drinks the most expensive whiskey she can afford and likes to throw axes, though not at the same time. Occasionally, she swims with sharks off the coast of La Jolla. She's a devout Catholic who prays at every meal. And she had wanted to be a cop since she was five. Her parents thought she'd outgrow it. I'm a first-generation Mexican-American. My parents immigrated here. I'm sure that their dream was for their little girl to get married and have lots of children and be a stay-at-home mom and have a good husband, and uh, that just wasn't my path. Trapp's parents are both from Zacatecas, Mexico. She says she gets her stubbornness from her mother and her work ethic from her dad. Her mother cleaned other people's houses and kept their own immaculate. Her father had little education when he came to the United States in his teens. By the time he retired, he was banquet manager at the Anaheim Hilton, which draws a lot of people from Disney and the massive Anaheim Convention Center. The easy way for me to to describe it, and I always describe it that way, I say, for me to be what I was, I went through hell. Talk about a teenager (laughs) who came to this country hidden in the engine compartment of a truck. You don't describe... Hell just is hot. There's a, a lot of more than that. It's... We know education because, I mean, really, he never went to school here. I mean, before I went into the uh, food industry or hotel businesses, I, I work as, as a gardener, and then I work as a, a dishwasher, and then, oh, I mean, yeah, I mean a, a shoe polish, and then uh, um, a car wash, and then a dishwasher, and then uh, uh, a night porter, and then a busboy. And then I move into, in 1975, I move into uh, banquets. And I told my kids, and I, I'm a big believer on that. If I did good, they need to do better. Julissa Trapp applied five times before she got to homicide, And after one rejection, she asked a senior officer, 
what do I need to do? He told her to get experience in one of the precursors, gangs, family crimes, or sex crimes. She put in for all three. She won Detective of the Year in Sex Crimes and again after she got to Homicide in 2010. On the squad, she developed a rule, there's no crying in Homicide, which she abbreviates as no crying in Homie. It means not letting emotion paralyze you in a job that confronts you endlessly with other people's pain. At crime scenes, this can translate as brusqueness. I'm a little rough around the edges sometimes. I don't have time for feelings. Once she let her frustration show at the scene of an eight-year-old shooting death, the male sergeant on duty kept saying, I don't know, to her questions until she snapped, what do you know? A male lieutenant pulled her aside to chastise her. Had she done anything wrong? Had she broken any policy? No, they were just talking about that elusive and subjective thing, tone. It wasn't the last time. She learned some strategies. If I add a... I'm sorry, could you please, so with a little softer voice, that it gets the job done just as well. Do I think I should have to resort to that? Maybe not, but I really don't care. It's about getting the job done. If I have to add a curtsy at the end, I'll even do that. What they call the tone thing became kind of a joke among her partners, like J.D. Duran, who is the longest-serving homicide detective at the Anaheim PD. He's a burly, gray-haired, jovial-looking cop in his 50s whose nickname is Big Pups. Of the 43 partners he's had in his 22 years there, she's one of just three women. He and Trap have a pact that if unnatural death befalls one of them, the other will take the case, which is pretty close to the highest compliment a murder cop can pay another. I mean, she can juggle a million balls in the air at the same time. She knows what she's talking about. She knows where she wants to go with the case. I asked him about the tone thing, and he said Trap has still another nickname, British Julie, a character who appears when, for instance, a beat cop is spitting sunflower seeds at her crime scene. She smiles through her teeth while carefully enunciating syllables of biting disapproval. She tends to smile when she's like yelling at people or giving her tone, and I think it's comical. So if she's telling somebody like, don't you think you should have did ABC123? The whole thing will be in British Julie. I talked to another investigator who had partnered with her, Bruce Lynn, who said they got to know each other so well they could communicate with a silent glance. She and Lynn had shared an instant camaraderie. She called him a crusty old white guy, and he made fun of her expensive taste in shoes. He marveled at how hard she hit the bag in Krav Maga class. He was an evangelical Christian and liked to debate theology. He asked her why, as a Catholic, she prayed to the Virgin Mary. And she'd say, sometimes I just want to talk to a woman. He liked to argue at length about the concept of purgatory until she finally had to say, can we just get back to murder? He used the same nickname Duran had. And when she is not mincing any, no, she's not mincing words, nor inflections, nor facial expressions. She's mincing none of it. That's British Julie. <laughs> yep. She absolutely wags her finger. Yep. <laughs> yep. Not every single time, but yeah, but without a doubt. But if you think you might be encountering British Julie, check for the finger.
In the early 2000s, when she was still Julissa Rios, the department gave her a new partner, a burly SWAT cop of German ancestry who had grown up surfing in Newport Beach. They rode in icy silence, disapproving of each other. He had heard rumors that she was tough to work with, and she thought he was full of himself. One day she got back from surgery a little too soon, and he saw her struggling with her equipment bag across the parking lot. He carried it for her. Something changed between them then. Soon they shared a friendship, and then she was in love with Eric Trapp and had his surname. They were both foodies and filled their shelves with cookbooks. She took him to her uncle's farm in the Inland Empire and introduced him to pajarete, a drink which combined cocoa powder, tequila, and a jet of milk right from the goat's udder. In their own kitchen, they made elaborate five-course meals, a whirling duet with La Creuset cookware and a working patter right out of the squad car. Who's the primary on this dish and who's the backup? Hey, yeah. sir, how much longer do you want to cook your chorizo? She was in her early 30s and still working gangs when they decided to start trying to have children. Her dad had been one of nine, and her mom, one of 20, would tell her, you shouldn't wait. When it didn't work, and still didn't work, Trapp found it hard to figure out God's plan for her. She researched her church's stance on in vitro fertilization. The Catechism of the Catholic Church called artificial insemination quote, morally unacceptable. But the department chaplain reassured her that she'd be doing God's will by building a family. Meanwhile, her mother convinced her to see a Sobadora, or fertility masseuse. I had the means to, to go to a phenomenal doctor here in Orange County. I remember walking in and meeting him and walking out and thinking, what an arrogant guy in Eric and I looking at each other, we're like, that's the guy we want. No bedside manner, but we're like, that's the guy we want. And, you know, very high success rate, awesome clinic. And, you know, you're going through all these tests and Mexican mama's like, you don't need all that. You don't need all those fancy doctors. You just need to go to the crazy oh, lady in downtown <laughs> LA, in some crazy part of LA with a chicken running around in the room who put some egg on my belly, and I don't know what crazy voodoo she did on me. Well, because we try to help her, and we try whatever they tell you that is going to work. She endured a physically taxing, emotionally draining gauntlet of needles and doctor's visits. The doctors retrieved her eggs, fertilized them, and implanted them. The pregnancy failed. They tried another doctor, and this time she carried to eight weeks. She went into her bedroom closet with a bottle of tequila and raged at God. Every baby stroller, every pregnant woman, every baby shower you get invited to, everything that is baby just, it's cruel. And it's not their fault. So then magnify that by being in a job. And then you can't understand why here is this particular person who is abusing meth and is dating a guy who is high on heroin and they live in a motel room and they are not in the best living conditions and they just had a child. 
and they're not taking care of it. You, you, you can't grasp why that's possible and you can't. I'm eating healthy, I'm doing everything I can, I'm, I'm going and spending a bajillion dollars with the doctor and I can't do what this woman on methamphetamines is doing without trying. She liked to be in control, but the world of IVF stripped away every illusion of it. Didn't her whole career prove the link between obsessive focus on a problem and the conquering of it? She was in homicide about a year when they tried again. She stayed home on bed rest, crocheting a baby blanket as the embryo grew. They looked through baby name books. If it was a girl, she'd pick the name. A boy, and Eric would pick, provided her mother could pronounce it. They heard a heartbeat. She carried for just ten weeks. It felt like a basic compact with her creator had been broken. So I remember one time she came to me and I said, Mother, what is the God that you tell me that is a... Look at what happened to me. So why? I know she was very angry. She don't say no. I don't believe in God anymore. I was so angry. I don't want to hear nothing about God. By then, the Traps had spent $100,000, pretty much their entire savings. Eric was willing to borrow if she wanted to try again. But she was tired of feeling like a failure and of being angry all the time. They talked about being foster parents with an eye toward adopting. But she had friends who had to give up their foster kids, and she was sure that would hurt too much. I finally got to a place where I didn't recognize myself. I looked in the mirror, and I was just like, this isn't me anymore. And I just knew at that point I could, I just couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. I was losing myself in this pointless battle to have a child. And I just finally had to tell myself, if the man upstairs wants me to have a child, it's gonna happen. And it hasn't happened and I just need to accept it. She had always been dedicated to her job, her grim and unique task in the universe, but it acquired new meaning now. And she wanted to be a mother, but now she thought, maybe that's not who I am going to be. Maybe I'm the woman who finds answers for other mothers. She had four swallows tattooed under her collarbone, one for each child she had conceived but had not been able to bring into the world, and whose soul she hoped to meet when she died. On the morning in 2014, Trapp's life intersected with the missing women in Santa Ana. She was doing something she loved. She was talking to a room full of students. She does it whenever she can, and here she is on a recent morning at Sycamore Junior High. Oh, I want to apologize in advance. I try really, really hard. I know you guys are all kids, but I am a lady, but I do have the vocabulary of a sailor. So if an occasional bad word pops out, don't hold it against me. Don't, like, call attention to it either, right? So hopefully your teacher doesn't hear it. Do you want a detective that, like, gives up because it's not easy to solve? Or do you want a detective, like, this is hard, but they still keep going? What do you say, Miguel? One that keeps going. So that's kind of the kind of person you need to be. She tells them about a key lesson from her stint in sex crimes where the victims were often too young to speak. 
Sometimes they can't talk because they're two years old. And they can't tell you what's happening to them. So who can you talk to that can tell you what's going on? Uh, parents. No? Neighbors. Parents don't know. Neighbors. Nope. Thank you. Right girl right there, Natasha. Yeah, the person who's doing it. Who do you tell your secrets to? Your friend. Your best friend. Your best friend. So this is where I learned how to talk to bad guys. I learned that in order for bad guys to talk to me, I had to become their best friend. When I show up, when I get called and someone's been murdered, should it matter who's lying on the ground? No. No. I'm going to treat that case exactly the same, no matter who my victim is. I learned very quickly in my homicide career that if I made a promise to a mother, I better keep it, right? Because if I don't keep that promise, is she ever going to trust law enforcement again? No. no. Does my murder victim care that I'm sick? No. no. Does he or she care that I've got a bajillion things to do at home? No. no. Do they care that I'm biting with my husband? No. no. Do they care that my mom's like upset that I haven't visited her in three weeks? No. no. On Friday morning, March 14th, 2014, Trapp was giving a talk very much like this one at another school. About 11.15 a.m., her cell phone buzzed. It was the text from the homicide squad that would summon her into the lives of the missing women in Santa Ana and their families, into the case that would possess her for years to come. It was a case in which she'd summon and weaponize all she'd gone through and would demand more of her than most cops were prepared to give. Trapp cut her talk short, thanked the students, and walked swiftly to her car. The text told her to get to Republic Waste Services on North Bluegum Street. It said, possible human remains. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, this is part one of five of Detective Trap. If you're the victim of sexual exploitation or want to help someone who is, call the National Human Trafficking Hotline. The number is 1-888-373-7888. Again, that's 1-888-373-7888. Detective Trap was written and reported by me, your host, Christopher Gofford. Associate producer is Greta Weber. Story editor is Liza Veal. Original music by Fernando Arruda. Sound design by Marcelino Villapando. Our editors at the Los Angeles Times are Steve Clow and Shelby Grad. Special thanks to Asil Kibbe, Julia Turner, and Abby Fentress Swanson. Executive produced by George Lavender, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.